the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Quan McCoy producing and engineering in Seattle. Today, looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones. He is the lead pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro and founder and chair of Blessers of Israel. We're going to talk about the role that Israel played in the discovery, if you will, of the Messiah and why there was so much confusion about his coming. Did the scriptures not give a clear picture? We'll talk with that about that with uh, Pastor Rich Jones coming up later this hour. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. By the way, I should mention tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Pastor Alvin Curry. He's pastor of Pillar of Truth Community Bible Church. He's also host of Let the Truth Set You Free, heard on KGNW at 7.30 a.m. Uh, mornings in Seattle. So that's coming up on tomorrow's program. Well, as you probably know by now, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled Tuesday in an unprecedented four to three decision to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot, citing Section three of the 14th Amendment. This is a nakedly partisan anti-democratic decision that ignores the law and prior precedent. Hans von Spakovsky points out, as have others, under the text and history of the 14th Amendment, as well as court precedent, Trump is not disqualified from running for office for numerous reasons. First, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies only to individuals who were previously a member of Congress, an officer of the United States, or a state official. Individuals who are elected, such as the president and vice president, are not officers within the meaning of Section 3. Second, no federal court has convicted Trump of engaging in insurrection or rebellion. In fact, the Senate acquitted Trump of that charge in his second impeachment. Third, some scholars assert Section 3 doesn't even exist anymore as a constitutional matter after the Amnesty Act of 1872 and 1898, a matter completely ignored by the court yesterday. And fourth, prior court rulings have held that Section 3 is not self-executing and Congress has never passed any federal law providing for enforcement, meaning that courts such as the Colorado Supreme Court have no legal authority to enforce Section 3. Well, despite these strong defenses, the court in Colorado proceeded in its power grab, deciding to remove the ability of American voters to make their own decision on who they believe should be president. This badly judged Banana Republic election interference will swiftly be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which should take this case to short circuit all the similar meritless challenges that are being filed in numerous states to remove Trump from the ballot. Again, Hans von Spakovsky putting this in its constitutional context. We'll see what the court actually does in the days ahead. There's no doubt they will expedite a decision in this case. Republican figures and top legal analysts expressed united outrage at the Colorado All-Democrat Supreme Court ruling against former Trump, saying it must be stricken from the state's 2024 election ballot due to the violation of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Trump also has yet to formally be convicted of insurrection or any Confederacy-era statutes of 14th Amendment is alluding to. 
It was said on a program uh, yesterday following the announcement that the Colorado Supreme Court, while entirely Democrat itself, was split on a four to three ruling, meaning some Democrats were uh, apprehensive to make such a landmark determination. And several of them made the statement that the Supreme Court certainly will and should overturn the decision. Well, a Colorado, rather a California official, is now calling for former President Donald Trump to be removed from California's 2024 presidential election ballot following the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that removed him from the state ballot there. In a letter dated Wednesday, California Lieutenant Governor Elani um, Kunalakis urged California Secretary of State Shirley Weber to explore every legal option to remove former President Donald Trump from California's presidential primary ballot, given the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. On Tuesday, the court voted, as I mentioned, four to three to disqualify him from appearing on the Sentinel State's ballot because he allegedly incited an insurrection on the 6th of January, 2021. This decision is about honoring the rule of law in our country and protecting the fundamental pillars of our democracy, Kunalakis uh, wrote to Weber, California must stand on the right side of history. Well, the Supreme Court will make that decision. The Colorado Supreme Court overturned an earlier lower court ruling on the case, and California will follow with a decision of their own should the Supreme Court tarry. Well, in an an heroic effort to save American democracy, the Colorado Supreme Court has voted to prevent residents of Colorado from voting for their preferred candidate. This is a quote from the Uh, Babylon B. I love democracy, and this is why we had to vote to overrule the millions of Colorado citizens who want to elect Trump through the democratic process, said Colorado Justice uh, and um, Melissa Hart after the vote. Trump is a terrifying orange man, and if he's elected, he will likely grow to over 50 feet and rampage through the country, killing people with his laser eyes. Our democracy is too precious for us to allow this to happen. After Justice Hart's statement, the three other justices who voted with her stood and clapped in approval. Democracy experts also applauded this democracy-subverting move to make sure democracy wasn't subverted. Just think, if four people in robes hadn't taken up the voting rights of millions, we would have lost our democracy, said one journalist and democracy expert, Linda Flogott. Thank God we saved it just in time. At publishing time, Trump had gained another 12% in the Colorado polls. Again, a bit of tongue-in-cheek from the Babylon Bee. I couldn't resist. Okay, I could have. I just chose not to. Well, the U.S. has reached a deal with Venezuelan government to release an ally of President Nicolas Maduro in exchange for freeing 10 jailed Americans and a group of Venezuelan political prisoners, senior Biden administration officials said Wednesday. The Maduro ally is a Colombian businessman who was arrested in 2020 for his alleged role in a money laundering scheme involving the bribery of Venezuelan government officials and $350 million in Venezuelan assets. Among the Americans, the State Department said there are six who are being wrongfully detained, including um, Evan Hernandez, Jarrell Kenmore, Joseph Cristela, and Savoy Wright, a senior administration official, added, at this time we are not naming any additional individuals out of consideration for their privacy. Wright's family said in a statement that they are relieved that the ordeal has ended. We are grateful to the United States government for bringing Savoy home so quickly to Mickey Bergman from the Richardson, uh, Richardson Center and Jonathan Franks, who guided us the entire way, and to the many others who helped to bring Savoy home. We are forever grateful 
they said. These individuals have lost far too much precious time with their loved ones and their families have suffered every day in their absence. The president said in a statement in response to their release, I'm grateful that these, uh, their ordeal is finally over and that these families are being made whole once more. Well, as part of the arrangement, Leonard Francis, better known as Fat Leonard, was arrested and returned to the U.S., He was behind one of the worst bribery scandals in U.S. Navy history. In 2022, weeks before his sentencing, he fled to Venezuela after escaping house arrest by cutting off his ankle monitoring bracelet. The president said that uh, had to make the extremely difficult decision to offer something that the Venezuelan counterparts have actively sought, one senior administration official said. And he made the decision to grant clemency to Alex Saab who was pending trial for money laundering and allow his return to Venezuela in what was essentially an exchange of 10 Americans and a fugitive from justice for one person returned to Venezuela. The head of the uh, Gaza hospital has admitted to Israel forces that the terror organization used his hospital to advance its military operations since the hospital is a safe place. We'll tell you more about what the director of the Kamal Hospital had to say in a moment. But we do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel Hillsboro here in Oregon. He's also the founder and chair of Blessers of Israel. That's coming up later this hour. Well, the head of a Gaza hospital is admitted to Israel forces, Israeli forces, that the terror organization does, in fact, use hospitals, in fact, his hospital, to advance its military operations since the hospital is a safe place. Ahmad Kalat, the director of the Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza, admitted in a bombshell interrogation with Israeli forces that Hamas used his hospital to hide high-ranking military officials because for them the hospital is a safe place, Kalat uh, said, when asked why they hide in the hospital, they won't get targeted or won't be targeted when they are in the hospital. He joined Hamas in 2010, holds a rank equivalent to a brigadier general, explained that he knew 16 hospital staffers, including doctors, nurses, paramedics and clerks, were also members of Hamas military's wing, the IZZ um, Ad Din Al Qassam Brigades. I know 16 people, the positions they hold. Kalat explained that the medical facility turned military hub was also used to house up to 100 high ranking terrorists. They are the seniors, military and civilian officials. They had rooms which they hid in. They stayed there 10 days and they uh, and then they changed places to a different place. And then they left the hospital. The military post also contained areas for interrogations, internal and special security. Kalat uh, revealed he said that each room had private telephone lines. There is a designed space for interrogations, internal security and special security revealing what uh, I would expect would not allow him ever to return home. In other international news, Chinese President Xi Jinping apparently warned President Biden last month that he intends to end Taiwan's decades-long de facto independence peacefully if possible. Xi told the 81-year-old commander-in-chief that Beijing will reunify Taiwan with the mainland of China, but that the timing has not yet been decided. 
uh, citing the three current and former U.S. officials briefed on the meeting, NBC reported. The White House didn't deny the exchange, which occurred during a November 15th summit outside San Francisco that was attended by a dozen U.S. and Chinese officials. I'm not going to get into the specifics of the discussion between the two leaders. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters on Air Force One en route to Milwaukee. I think you can understand I'm not going to read out that private conversation, end quote. President Xi has been public and clear about his desire for reunification. That's not something that's different or new, Kirby said. The White House spokesperson went on to say that the U.S. will continue to adhere to its one China policy of not recognizing Taiwan as independent and added that, as the president has said, there's no reason for this to come to blows, end quote. At the summit, Xi said that China's preference is to take Taiwan peacefully, not by force, and said the U.S. military leaders who say that Xi plans to take Taiwan in 2025 or 2027 were wrong because he has not yet set a time frame, NBC reported. The so-called Chinese president for life and Biden met for four hours and U.S. readouts of the uh, talks didn't mention any notable updates regarding Taiwan, which has uh, been self-governing since 1949, the victory of Mao Zedong's communist uh, in Chinese uh, in the Chinese Civil War. Also in October, the Communist Party run television network in the province of Hunan aired a five episode program called When Marx Met Confucius. In it, actors portraying the European revolutionary and the ancient Chinese sage pontificate on their doctrines and discover that their ideas are in perfect harmony. I am longing for a supreme and far-reaching ideal world where everyone can do their best and get what they need, Marx says. I call it a communist society. I also advocate the establishment of a society where everyone is happy and equal, Confucius responds. I call it the great united uh, unity of the world. Well, the program's message is that modern Chinese culture should be a synthesis of Marxism and China's tradition, a fusion achieved by another great philosopher, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. There's been endless debate about how traditional culture should be treated, one scholar on the show explains. But finally, thanks to Xi's wisdom, the program, the problem rather, was truly solved and people bound thoughts suddenly became clear. Well, the Marx and Confucius show is just one of small a part of Xi's campaign to fashion a new ideological conformity in China. Its apparent aim is to foster unity in preparation for struggles at home and abroad, but with the ultimate purpose of tightening Xi's grip on China. Chinese leaders want to have a very powerful socialist ideological framework that can congeal the population. And this is, of course, under the party's control and guidance. Wang Fen, a sociologist at UC Irvine, said, what's a more powerful way to centralize power than to control people's thought? Well, Xi's push for communist conformity might uh, seem uh, anachronistic in the age of social media and the global digital commons, but it's only one way he's dragging China back into an older, darker time, he says. He's reversed decades of market liberalization in favor of renewed state intervention in the economy, returned to Cold War-style confrontation with the West after a period of fruitful cooperation, and reestablished one-man rule uh, to a degree unseen since the days of Mao Zedong, the communist regime's founder. Now he's attempting to restore the intense ideological indoctrination of earlier years of communist rule, the era of Mao's Little Red Book, and a quest for a nation uh, to uh, function in national unity, as he defines it, and uh, total party dominance. In this sense, China is in the throes of a culture war. 
one that the state has uh, has been wa- waging rather against society for some time using the measure of repression available to its leader. G has already intensified censorship, strangled private education. Now his campaign is picking up pace. In October, he unveiled a framework he calls Xi Jinping Thought on Culture, the latest installment in a growing corpus of his uh, thought meant to direct foreign affairs, the military, and other aspects of policy and private life. With this pronouncement, according to the state news uh, agency, Jinhua, Xi's aim is to provide a strong ideological guarantee, spiritual strength, and a socialist ideology that has the power to unite and inspire his people. Something to watch, something of a culture war in China that uh, Xi Jinping has total dominance over. Well, a Catholic archbishop in Kazakhstan reportedly issued a formal repudiation of the Vatican doctrinal uh, office's guideline this week, allowing priests to offer blessings to same-sex couples. He accused the Catholic Church of propagating gender ideology. Tomasz Peta, who has served as Metropolitan Archbishop of the Archdiocese of St. Mary and Astana since 2003, prohibited any form of blessing for same-sex couples and also publicly admonished Pope Francis, asking him to revoke the guidance he signed off on a week uh, this week, according to the Catholic Herald. The Vatican's um, Doctrine of the Faith issued a declaration on Monday titled, um, well, I won't try to pronounce the the language, the Italian, which provided a broadening and enrichment of the classical understanding of blessings, which is closely linked to a liturgical perspective, as they wrote. The declaration allows spontaneous pastoral blessing for same-sex couples and other couples in irregular situations, though it clarified that the blessing is not akin to marriage and that such relationships are still sinful. So why you would bless a sinful relationship is unclear to me, and the archbishop said he stands against it. It is precisely in this context that one can understand the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations. This declaration is also intended as a tribute to the faithful people of God who worship the Lord with so many gestures of deep trust in his mercy. Well, the declaration warned that one should neither provide for nor promote a ritual for the blessing of couples in an irregular situation, uh, but again, uh, grasping at, at straws, straining at gnats, not altogether clear. Uh, but the, uh, the archbishop said that will not be the case in Kazakhstan. And it will be interesting to see if others uh, stand against the Pope in this latest pronunciation. In another news a story, a Minnesota commission tasked with redesigning the state flag and seal announced its selection for the updated state flag on the 19th of this month. The State Emblems Redesign Commission voted 11 to 1 to approve the new design. It features an eight-pointed star against a navy blue background uh, shaped to resemble Minnesota next to a solid light blue field, which represents the state's waters, according to the commission. The design was a modification of submission F-1935, one of the three finalists selected by the commission. Andrew Precker, the 24-year-old from Minnesota, submitted the design. He described his design as one featuring a navy-colored abstract shape of Minnesota with a white star representing the state's motto, Star of the North, as well as a symbol of unity above the land of diversity. His original design had featured three color stripes, white, green, and light blue. Those were nixed in favor of a solid blue field. The three colors in the original design had been chosen because the white stripe symbolized snow. The green represented the beauty of the, of nature and also the important role agriculture has played in the history of the state. And the light blue stripe represents the significance of water to the state, each as the land of uh, 10,000 lakes, the birth 
uh, state of the Mississippi River and the origins of Minnesota's name. The designer said Minnesota's name is derived from a Sioux word, meaning sky tinted water, says the website for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Overall, he said he wanted to design the design to be very simple, while also symbolizing the various important aspects of the history of the state, the culture and the people. That's cultures, plural. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up in our next segment, Pastor Rich Jones, pastor from Calvary Chapel Hillsboro here in Oregon, founder and chair of Blessers of Israel. We'll be talking about uh, Jesus, the Messiah, and why he was not recognized at his birth and beyond. That's coming up in our next few segments. Well, the White House described the new immigration law in Texas allowing law enforcement to arrest illegal immigrants as extreme Tuesday, igniting the latest tension between the Biden administration and the states at the southern border over its handling of the migrant crisis. The new legislation signed by Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Monday allows law enforcement to arrest immigrants who enter the country illegally, who would then face the choice to leave the U.S. or be prosecuted on misdemeanor charges for illegally entering. Migrants who don't comply could face arrest again and more serious felony charges. A White House spokesperson derided the new law as extreme and argued it will make communities in Texas less safe. Governor Abbott, however, said the law will better protect Texans and Americans from Biden's open border policies. The tension between Texas and the administration was also on display Tuesday when a federal appeals court temporarily blocked the Biden administration from cutting razor wire set up by Texas earlier this year. The state had sued in October and had been rebuffed by a federal judge. But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals barred the administration from damaging, destroying or otherwise interfering with Texas's um, concertina wire fence in the vicinity of Eagle Pass, Texas, unless it is for a medical emergency. Attorney General Kevin, uh, rather Ken Paxton, um, uh, will hold um, Biden and DHS uh, Secretary Mayorkas accountable for attacking Texas sovereign authority and their attempt to obstruct our border security efforts, Abbott said in a statement. That legal battle is taking place alongside another legal battle between the Department of Justice and Texas over its deployment of buoys in the Rio Grande in Texas to stop migrants swimming across. Former President Donald Trump is back in Iowa for the fourth time in less than a month had a message of urgency to his supporters. We've got to be sure that you put um, this thing away, Trump uh, told his supporters on Tuesday night at a rally in the uh, northeastern Iowa City. You've got to show up. Even if you think we're going to win by a lot, you've got to show up, he said. With less than four weeks to go until the caucus, the Trump campaign has shifted into a higher gear. The former president is picking up the, uh, the pace when it comes to stumping in Iowa. And the campaign is training close to 2,000 caucus captains in the precincts across the state. Their sole job is to run each individual caucus that takes place and making sure that the list of the targeted voters supporting President Trump show up. Trump's campaign senior advisor told Fox News the Trump campaign's ground game operation in Iowa is leagues ahead of his 2016 effort when he narrowly lost the caucuses to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Trump is the commanding frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination as he makes his third straight White House run. And the latest polls in Iowa, whose January 15th caucus 
uh, leads uh, lead rather off the GOP presidential nominating calendar suggests that Trump is over 50 percent support and holds a massive double digit lead over the dwindling field of Republican rivals. Trump and his campaign team are aiming for an overwhelming victory in Iowa as part of their plan to wrap up the nomination race as quickly as possible and pivot to a general election rematch with President Biden next November. The Biden administration announced hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding to upgrade energy codes nationwide that conform with strict energy efficiency standards, a move experts said is tantamount to a backdoor natural gas ban. The Department of Energy said it will begin accepting applications for a total of $530 million in technical assistance, competitive grants for local residents and commercial building code upgrades as part of its implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. According to the Department of Education, adoption of the latest model energy codes, zero energy codes and building performance standards would lead to widespread emissions reductions. In addition to the administration's efforts to push new, more energy efficient building codes nationwide, it's also issued a wide range of new regulations targeting gas powered homes and appliances. For example, it's taken aim at gas water heaters, stoves and furnaces, which critics say will only lead to higher prices for consumers. A progressive congressman associated with the squad who proudly voted to defund the Austin Police Department as a city council member and blasted the department just last week for alleged racist practices is under fire after requesting a police patrol at his home for the same department, or rather from the same department. It's come to our attention that anti-police king of the defund movement in Austin, Greg Cesar, Uh, who only last week called APD, an agency with racist practices, has requested enhanced patrols around his house for the next week. The Austin Police Retired Officers Association posted on X, We want everyone in Austin to feel safe, the Post added, but this seems to us as the height of hypocrisy from the congressman. Maybe he should hire private security like his fellow squad members do. Sure seems like he wants the police in his neighborhood, just not yours. Uh, Cesar has uh, was... Uh, perhaps the most vocal driver of defunding the Austin Police Department in 2020 while he was a member of the city council. It led to a police shortage and a wave of officer retirements that critics say the city still hasn't recovered from. We did it, he posted on X in August of 2020. Austin City Council just reduced APD's budget by over $100 million and reinvested resources into our community's safe and we- safety and well-being. Additionally, Cesar sent a letter last week to the Justice Department criticizing practices within the Austin Police Department, highlighting the need for systematic reforms to the department's policies and practices of excessive and lethal use of force, racial discrimination and discrimination against people with mental health conditions. Well, news of the request for the security detail, which was confirmed, drew immediate criticism from Austin residents on social media, many suggesting the request was an example of hypocrisy. The leader of one of the nation's largest teachers unions was seen in a viral video saying that school choice undermines democracy. School choice undermines democracy. The American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten, much in the news, made the remarks at the Network for Public Education Action National Conference in October. A clip of her remarks blasted methods of school choice was shared on X and went viral on social media. In the video, she took aim at former White House Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, Manhattan Institute's Christopher Rufo, and American Federation for Children senior uh, fellow Corey DeAngelis for advocating for school choice measures. 
School choice policies allow parents to send their kids to schools outside their neighborhood or opt out of going to the public school in their neighborhood. Most states restrict parents to schools within their zip code or the school district that presides over their residential area. Teachers unions typically lobby against school choice because they claim it siphons off taxpayer funding that's being allocated to other educational options and instead could be used to boost teachers' salaries, invest in public school facilities, and recruit more teachers. Well, the video of Weingarten was shared by Parents Defending Education President Nicole Neely. Uh, Randy Weingarten says people who want to let families choose where they send their children to school are attacking our democracy. She said in a tweet, uh, a tweet about the video. This video tells me we're over the target. She knows she's losing power and there's nothing she can do about it. Uh, Randy Weingarten ex- uh, complains that we only offer one solution, which is uh, an odd cr- uh, critique. That's like criticizing a doctor for prescribing antibiotics to treat strep throat. Of course, I'm going to offer the best solution, empowering all families to choose the education providers that best meet their needs and align with their values. American Federation for Children senior fellow Corey DeAngelis said she undermined democracy when she fought to keep schools closed as long as she possibly could. But the truth is the left uses this phrase just like they do to call everything racist, to throw anything at the wall to see what will stick. There is zero logic to her argument. It's just an attempt to smear the perfectly reasonable policy of allowing families to take their own children's education dollars to the education providers of their choosing, particularly in failing schools and where students are struggling. The trend of radical anti-Israel leftists shutting down government buildings on demand, a um, Ceasefire now, something which would prolong Hamas attacks against Israeli civilians and give the Iran-backed terrorists a hope of survival, reached a new level on Tuesday when the rotunda of the United States Capitol was closed by authorities while they arrested and removed the demonstrators. Was this an insurrection, one wonders? Andrew uh, DiSardio says that there's a ceasefire now protest happening now in the Capitol rotunda. Capitol Police not letting people through while arrests being made. Chad Pergram says USCP arrests 60 people in connection with the anti-Israel protest in the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, we were aware of the group's potential plan to take a tour of the U.S. Capitol building and then start the protest. Well, on this day in history, 1803, the Louisiana Purchase is completed as ownership of the territory is formally transferred from France to the United States. 1860, South Carolina becomes the first state to secede from the Union as all 169 delegates to the special convention in Charleston vote in favor of separation. 1924, Adolf Hitler is released from prison after serving nine months for his role in the Beer Hall Putsch. 1963, the Berlin Wall is opened for the first time to West Berliners who are allowed one-day visits to relatives in the eastern sector for the holidays. 1989, the United States launches Operation Just Cause, sending troops into Panama to topple the government of General Manuel Noriega. 1999, the Vermont Supreme Court rules that homosexual couples are entitled to same-sex benefits and protections as wedded couples of the opposite sex. 2001, the U.N. Security Council authorizes a multinational national force for Afghanistan. 2005, a federal judge rules that intelligent design could not be mentioned in biology classes in a Pennsylvania public school district, uh, delivering a stinging attack on the Dover area school board. 
2013, a federal judge strikes down Utah's ban on same-sex marriage. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, the House gives final congressional approval to a $1.5 trillion tax overhaul, the biggest package of tax changes in a generation, and the first major legislative achievement of President Trump and House Senate Republicans. Some Republicans warn of a potential backlash against an overhaul that offers uh, corporations and wealthy taxpayers the biggest benefits. Up next, a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm reminded of the book of Micah, the fifth chapter that says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. So we are all anticipating celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. It's hard to put into words the the full meaning and the breadth of what God has done for us in keeping that ancient promise and sending his son. Well, to help us to prepare in our commemoration of the birth of Christ, I've invited the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, that's here in Oregon, and founder of Blessers of Israel and of chairman of the board, Pastor Rich Jones, uh, to talk about all of this. Pastor, thank you so much for joining us, and Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. I'm excited to join you today. There is so much happening in the world, and uh, it's such an important time that we're living in. Well, it, it absolutely is. And this season gives us an opportunity to focus our attention on this aspect of God's promise being fulfilled. And I hope reminding us of God's faithfulness that we can be assured that he will fulfill the remainder of what is yet to come with regard to his son, Jesus Christ. Let me begin by asking you, what did the nation of Israel expect in a Messiah? You would have thought after the many, many uh, centuries that Israel would have pinpointed, this is what we're looking for This is who we should expect and would have recognized him uh, right away because the scriptures are full of prophetic words about uh, who the Messiah would be. What did the nation of Israel actually expect in a Messiah? Well, I, I, a lot of things, but I think one of the most important aspects of what they expected in a Messiah was that they expected the Messiah to be a great uh, captain, a uh, great commander one who would overthrow the enemies and defeat the enemies of Israel. This is a very important expectation that Israel had in those days. In fact, the disciples themselves had that expectation. You remember when the disciples uh, said to Jesus, you know, when you come into your kingdom, you know, permit me to sit on your right and on the left. They fully expected Jesus to overthrow Rome. And so that was the expectation. And, uh, of course, Jesus explained that he had come uh, in reference to sin. When he returns at the end of the age, he will come in reference to faith. But that expectation really is very, very important for us to understand. I was in um, Israel a few years ago, and we had um, an opportunity to have Sabbath dinner in the home of a Jewish rabbi. Now, this was a wonderful uh, mm. opportunity. And uh, there were other pastors with us. He invited us into his home. What a privilege this is. 
there's a lot to learn, uh, you know, from watching a Jewish family uh, uh, there together. Anyway, in the conversation, uh, one of the pastors said, um, so you do not believe that Jesus uh, is the Messiah? And he said, no. And he said, well, why is that? And the um, Jewish rabbi said, after considering, he said, because Jesus did not fulfill the requirement of the Messiah to overthrow her enemies. This Jesus did not do. Therefore, he could not have been the Messiah. Now, this, this is what they expected. This is absolutely what they expected. And so I then jumped into the conversation and I said, so here, here's my question. So when the Messiah returns at the end of the age, will he then at that time fulfill Isaiah 53? Now, you might remember Isaiah 53 is that amazingly descriptive uh, chapter prophetically describing the suffering of the Messiah that will come uh, to take our transgressions upon him by his scourgings, we will be healed. He will die in behalf of Israel and the sins of the world. I said, will the Messiah at that time fulfill Isaiah 53? Will he then die? Well, you can't have both. You see, he cannot come and defeat mm -hmm. the enemies of Rome mm -hmm. and be the suffering Messiah who dies for the sins of the world. And so he, he, I, I asked the question, and he went silent to think, and that silence went on for several minutes, and no one jumped in to help him. Finally, he said, I don't know. I can't answer the question. Well, there's a dilemma. Jesus came to fulfill Isaiah 53. They were focusing on Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 where it describes at the end of the age, the Messiah will come. And we know this is the case. The, the nations of the world will arise against Israel in the latter days. The Messiah will step foot on Israel. He will enter Jerusalem, and he will rule and reign the nations of the world from Jerusalem. But that is at the end of the age. The requirement of Isaiah 53 is that the Messiah will come for the sins of the world. That's where the confusion lies. And so, again, that was their expectation then and is uh, now. That's what they, you know, there is, the nations of the world are rising, uh, rising against Israel today. Yeah. And so, you know, the, your question was, what were they expecting? And that's, that's the answer. They wanted Jesus if he was going to be the Messiah, to overthrow Rome. That was the oppressor. And, of course, Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin and death. And uh, so we have, a, we have a wonderful king and Messiah. But Amen. Yeah. They were looking, as many of us are today, for a political or a military leader that would set things uh, right. God's view was much higher than ours. He was looking at the fundamental problem in the human heart to That's deal right. with that so that we could be restored in our relationship uh, to, to God the Father through his son and receive ultimately his Holy Spirit. So it's a, a perhaps a cautionary tale to us as we're looking at, for political and military leaders to resolve all the problems of the world. They will always fall short and certainly do not reflect what God had in mind 
in focusing um, our attention on what is really our fundamental core problem, and that is the issue of sin. Oh, that, of course, you know, uh, man has turned his back on God from, you know, the days of the garden. And so the darkness that is we see in the world today, the hatred, the animosity, the division, uh, it's all an aspect of the darkness of the condition of man. That's why Jesus came, to be light in the darkness, to transform a world that's lost and in despair. And again, you're right, people are looking for political answers, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is not a political problem, it's a spiritual problem. Yeah, it works itself out in politics and in familial relationships and in every other way, but it really is a fundamental sin problem. How widely known was the promise of a Messiah to the wider world? Uh, Certainly Herod knew about it. Um, Mm -hmm. Were the people in Israel, were they steeped in the teaching of Scripture from the the leaders, or would they have, have simply had a general notion that a Messiah is one day coming? Would it just have been the men who would have understood uh, all of this? Well, primarily, of course, the the average uh, Hebrew did not have access to the the scriptures, the teachers, the rabbis. They were the ones who would instruct um, the people of Israel. But it was well known that the Messiah was expected. There was a high degree of expectation at that time when Jesus uh, came. He was fulfilling uh, the prophecies of Daniel nine almost. I mean, clearly when he walked into Jerusalem that day, on the day we call the triumphant entry, it was the exact day in which that was fulfilled. So there was a tremendous expectation in Israel, messianic expectation at that time. When I read the first chapter of Isaiah, I see um, Israel there being described as having... um, no real understanding of who their father was, having rejected mm-hmm. what God had offered them. And it's sort of a microcosm of humankind. Israel was given the position of uh, being the nation that would bless the whole earth because the Messiah would come from them. They would um, mm-hmm. spread the message and so on. It, 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 um, it reminds us that we, like uh, the nation, didn't recognize and still today don't necessarily recognize um, the Messiah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, how how things were at the time that Jesus came in that nation and certainly uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, but the, the need for the Messiah and for God to be known by them in ways that they had not taken full advantage of up to that point? Well, I think the, the I- issue in Israel in those days, and really for many years prior, was the lack of what we might describe as revival, a lack of authentic um, relationship, authentic, um, uh, you know, desiring God, it had devolved, you might say, into religion. And religion is, does not bring about revival, does not bring about authentic and genuineness. But instead, the, the Jewish leaders had become quite political themselves. They were very much involved with, with Herod, and uh, manipulating the the scene, and the the you know the high priest was essentially approved, if not appointed, by Rome itself, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, let's say a lack of authentic and genuineness in in their religion, uh, but Jesus came and uh, brought about in the common man 
a revival. The people loved to hear Jesus because they, you know, when Jesus would refute the, uh, the Jewish leaders, oh, they loved that because they knew it wasn't right. They, could, they knew it wasn't right. But Jesus brought such a confrontation with the Jewish leaders. Oh, they followed him. They loved the authority. Here is mm-hmm. man who speaks with authority, you know. And uh, their hearts resonated with the words that he spoke. Jesus was bringing about a revival. And that's what the world needed then. That's what the world needs today. Absolutely. We're talking this afternoon with Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro in, in Oregon. And he's also the founder and um, the, the blessers of Israel and the chairman of the board. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. He's also founder of Blessers of Israel and serves as the chairman of the board. We're talking about uh, the birth of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was received or why he wasn't received in the way that one might uh, expect as we attempt during the season to comprehend the incarnation of Christ, which in and of itself uh, one could could sit and contemplate in silence for a lifetime. Um, what was the significance uh, to the time that God chose to send his son, the, the historical context that uh, into which Jesus was born in this small remote village of Bethlehem? Well, of course, Bethlehem being the city of David, and you know that which brings up, of course, that the Messiah uh, would be the son of David and all the promises that God made to David. So the significance of that is all wrapped up in a multitude of prophecies, all fulfilled. I mean, if you were to, if you were to accumulate all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, I mean, absolutely stunningly amazing and mm-hmm. fulfilled exactly so. If you read Isaiah 53, for example, we mentioned earlier, how it describes the suffering that the Messiah would endure. It is, it is so clearly describing the suffering that Jesus uh, went through. And so all of the fulfillment from the birth, uh, the humble birth in uh, Bethlehem, uh, you know, to the common man, uh, all, you know, being raised uh, in poverty, uh, but then being buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean, all of it's so exact uh, all of that, of course, to confirm our faith as we look back and we see that the timing of that was exactly so. All of history looked forward to that one event and all of history since looked back, back to it. It is the singular event on which all of history hinges uh, from the biblical perspective. You know, one of the interesting things uh, to consider is that the the whole world was unaware of the most significant event that took place in human history at the birth of of Jesus. There was the star of Bethlehem, the astronomy of Christmas, if you will. There were the shepherds who arrived, the wise men who came sometime later. But what occurred on that um, that night, we presume, um, was the most significant event in all of human history. And yet most of the world was blissfully unaware. Most of the nation Mm -hmm. was unaware of what was taking Mm -hmm. place. And I think many of us scratch our heads and wonder, why wasn't there more of a spectacular display that the whole world uh, would have seen and recognized, okay, this is what's happened. Um, Our hope has arrived. You know what I think? I think it's because uh, this is the way of 
genuine, authentic response. You know, if if uh, uh, you know the the Messiah and Great King came in a tremendous display of power, uh, you know, everyone would would um, would give feigned obedience. In other words, they would uh, not be authentic in their response because they were intimidated by the Great King. But the way Jesus has brought forth the light of the world is is such a powerful way because now it's the Spirit stirring hearts one by one, leading a revival. Here's an example. You know, when we do the candlelight services, I'm sure, I'm sure many churches have candlelight services where you uh, bring the room down to its darkest, you know, possible dark uh, experience, mm-hmm. and then you light one candle. And that, of course, is the picture of God sending His Son to be the light of the world. And then that candle, we, we you know, start to spread around the room as Jesus, it pictures Jesus sharing with the disciples, you know, the, the truth and the light of God being that life amongst men. And then it's, you know, spreading and spreading throughout the room. And finally, it, you know, it's all the room is filled with the, you know, lights of the candles. And then we tell everyone to lift them up, right? If you have a light, do you hide it under a bushel? No, you're right. You lift it up. Everyone lifts it up. And there's a holy awe, you know, as everyone sees, wow. And that's a beautiful picture. Because here Jesus came, you know, in the in the empire of Rome, who knew nothing of the Messiah. But it wasn't that long, just a, a few hundred years later, that Christianity became the, the religion and faith of the entire Roman Empire. So there, to me, I believe, is the influence of the Spirit and authentic revival. Yes. That's what God is basing it on, is authentic, genuine revival. Mm, yes, yes. It's interesting uh, to consider those who were assembled there to witness um, his birth or to arrive sometime after his birth to um, give uh, to recognize what had what had occurred. Mm-hmm. What does his birth tell us about his return? I, it grieves me to consider I've been to Bethlehem several times. Mm-hmm. It grieves me to consider that most of the people living there don't recognize or acknowledge what happened in Bethlehem in fulfillment of God's promises. They might embrace um, the the teaching of Scripture in the Old Testament, but don't recognize what has already happened. Uh, We recognize that Jesus will return. What does his birth tell us, if anything, about his return and his promise uh, to the nation of Israel? Well, you know, you brought up a very interesting perspective, which is Bethlehem today. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Bethlehem was, what was it, maybe 70, 75% Christian. Mm-hmm. Today, uh, there are very, very few, very small minority. Why? Because they've been heavily persecuted and come against, you know, uh, and there have been a lot of, of Christians who have fled the area. Now it's taken over by those who, that are enemies of the gospel right there in the city of Jesus' birth. That says everything about the condition of the world. That's why Jesus must come at the end of the age and to set everything right. This is a messed up, broken world. And we are, I, I think everybody with any kind of spiritual discernment can see it. There is a dark cloud. There is a spiritual darkness that is arising in this world. 
That makes us all say, oh, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly because this world is in great need of the Messiah. Yeah, the Messiah who would be a descendant of David would come from the nation of Israel. My heart grieves to consider that uh, many of the Jewish people in Israel and abroad, the diaspora, don't acknowledge Jesus as mm-hmm. uh, as the Messiah, uh, but that God's promise to the nation will be fulfilled, that there will be a remnant that will uh, yeah. that will recognize and worship him. What can you tell us about what's happening there now that might be relevant to our, our concern for the peace of Jerusalem and God's uh, promise made to Israel in the days ahead? Of course, what's happening now uh, this uh, this October 7 attack by Hamas against Israel is is still being played out. Of course, as this war is in is still being uh, waged there in Gaza, and uh, the grief. Oh, what's happening in Israel today is grief. I mean, yes. I think everyone from the north to the south has been impacted. Everyone knows someone who was impacted by that attack that against uh, happened against Israel on October 7th. And the tragedy that unfolded is breaking hearts all over the world for those who love Israel. And so that is, it speaks so clearly as to what's happening now. There is an arising anti-Semitism. There is an arising anti-Israel sentiment, anti-Zionism. We, I think we're shocked at the degree of it, as we're seeing now protests uh, in you know, all over the world that are arising against Israel. Who would have thought that this would be the situation today after we've seen the Holocaust? But it's speaking to the fulfillment of the Scriptures. We are seeing the Scriptures fulfilled before our very eyes. The nations of the world are aligning against Israel. The necessity of the Messiah is greater today and will be leading up to those latter days so that's what we see it. We see it right now happening in Israel. We see it happening in the nations of the world. And it's amazing. It's impressive to see the scriptures come to life, but it's also very heartbreaking. Yeah, it certainly does. Can you stay with us for just a few more minutes? Sure, love to. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Pastor Rich Jones, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro here in Oregon. He's also the founder of the Blessers of Israel and Chairman of the Board. And in the interest of full disclosure, I serve on that board as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Senior Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel Hillsboro and founder of Blessers of Israel. Now, how might we encourage our, our friends, our family members, our associates to consider Christ outside of the manger? Because his birth, it, while it is significant, without the life that follows, that sinless life, his fulfilling um, the promise that God made that salvation would be available to us, um, we would uh, we would still be lost. How can we encourage others to consider Christ outside of the manger? You know, one of the one of the most powerful scriptures I think um, that speaks to this in regard is Second Second Corinthians chapter five, and it, it, the whole of the chapter is amazing, right? But at the end of that chapter, he says uh, again powerfully. He says that God was in the world reconciling the world to himself through Jesus the Messiah. And 
gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is what you're speaking to. That, that is the hope of our world today. We, believers in Jesus Christ, we have been given this ministry as ambassadors for Christ. And notice uh, in that chapter what it says, because it's really quite amazing to me, where it says, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. But then notice, it is as though God were entreating the world through us. Therefore, and I'm quoting, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's amazing to me. That's representing God's heart. God is entreating. God is, what does entreating mean? It means to ask, deeply heartfelt asking. And, and then we beg you. That's amazing to me that God would, would you essentially beg. You might say, well, that's what it says. That's amazing to me. Because, you know, we have this thought that God is, you know, this angry, uh, you know, God who is bringing, bearing down wrath. But then we see this, that God's heart is so broken over the condition of man that he entreats, that he literally is saying, I beg you in behalf of Christ, please, please be reconciled to God. That, I believe, is is the heart of those who follow Christ today. We need to be those who bring some words of grace, a peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Uh, this is a broken, broken world, and it so desperately needs to know that God, He hates sin because of what it does to people He loves. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, in a Bible study just this past week, and one of the things that was emphasized is the fact that Jesus exposes sin in order that we might be made free from sin. Yeah. Uh, he's not a punisher uh, in, in terms of um, making us uh, feel the, the weight of the shame of it. His goal is for us to find freedom from the power of sin. Uh, something that we cannot do on our own. During this season, many of our listeners today are, are believers in Jesus. Um, and I'm reminded of the lyric from one of the Christmas carols, let every heart prepare him room. We're in this mm-hmm. Advent season. And for many of us, we've spent time day after day uh, contemplating different aspects of the incarnation of Christ and ultimately his birth. What are some of the things that you can recommend that we can do to um, prepare him room, not just during this season, but beyond so that we uh, not only celebrate him as he ought to be celebrated, but that we also um, have room in our hearts for him that overflows into ministering uh, to others, into loving others well, into serving Him without compromise. Well, loving others well, serving others well is, is absolutely what God desires, but it starts with us, individual heart of revival. And to me, that's preparing or making room in our hearts, you might say, because what God wants to do in our lives is revival. And and the church is made alive on the foundation of that revival. That is the power of it. That is the Holy Spirit bringing that that treasure in earthen vessels that Paul describes. I love that image. Yeah. That that you know the light has shined in the darkness, has shone forth in our hearts. Uh, this treasure we have in earthen vessels. Okay, we are the earthen vessels. In other words, what is an earthen vessel? It's a clay pot, 
that's us, right? Now, I suppose, I love to tease people, and the older we get, the more we look like clay pots. <laughs> so I suppose, I suppose that's a, an accurate way to describe it. But w- the treasure in earthen vessels is that picture of that light in the darkness shining forth revival. See, because one of the things we need to recognize is that that which God desires to do is beautiful light. Right, David said in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to meditate in the temple, and to behold the beauty of the Lord. Don't you love that description? To behold the beauty of the Lord. That's what I would love our listeners to take hold of. How beautiful is the Lord? How beautiful is His presence in your life? How beautiful is His glory on your soul? If you want to make room for Him in your heart, then take hold of that, that God's presence through His Son, Jesus Christ, in filling you is the beauty of your soul. That's why people, you know, are are messed up, because they're looking and longing. There's something missing, and they're looking for love but they're looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, and we try to manufacture the warmth of the season by creating Mm -hmm. beautiful environments, singing songs that are familiar. Uh, There's so many things that we do to try to create um, this atmosphere, and it always falls short. I've mentioned here several times, I saw two women get in a fight over a frozen chicken. One hit the other in the head with a frozen chicken while in the background, Joy to the World was playing. You know, we, we cannot create the things that we, we sing about and that we long for apart from the true meaning of, of Christmas, mm-hmm. the beauty of, of Jesus, his birth, the fulfilled promise that God uh, brought to us in Bethlehem on that, uh, in that obscure village of Bethlehem on that mm-hmm. night when most of the world was going about its business and what he has offered us as a consequence is uh, is more than we could ever have even thought to ask for. That's right. You know, you described that so beautifully right there. Uh, the atmosphere, you know, of Christmas. Why do we want it to be so? You know, the the Christmas tree just so. You know, the pres- presents wrapped beautifully. Uh, you know, hot chocolate on the stove. Uh, Christmas music in the background. Why do we want all that? Because the heart longs for a taste of heaven. Mm. And, in, and in many ways, that's, that's, that's what we are experiencing, right? It's just a little taste of heaven. But it comes, as you just said, far, far short of what the reality of revival is meant to be. And that is, unless there is that revival, that is the reality of it, all of the trappings on Christmas are just that. They're just, you know, glitter on the tree. We need true, authentic revival. The world needs it. It's broken. It's messed up. There are so many people today that are broken. That is the need of the hour. God loves the world, and He wants to see the world in revival. And I tell you, it's a, it's, it breaks God's heart. It ought to break yes. our heart to see the condition of things today. I have a beautiful... Um, green bough on the hearth of my fireplace and the lights have gone out. And Mm. I was reminded as I looked at that, you know, they were so beautiful when the lights were twinkling, they've gone out, but the light of the world has come. And when we embrace him and experience all that he intended, 
uh, for us. There is nothing like it. You can take the Christmas tree down. You can put the decorations away. Uh, but that that beauty and that joy remains in Jesus Christ. Amen. Pastor, uh, Pastor, thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate the opportunities to talk with you. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Uh, for folks in our area here in, uh, in the Portland metro area, if they are looking for a church to celebrate uh, this holiday season, what, what are you doing at Hillsboro? Uh, well, Calvary we, Chapel. We have seven services going on you this do. weekend. <laughs> you exhaust it's, me just when you say it. It's amazing. All right. So Saturday night, of course, we have a service, three Sunday morning services as our normal, 8 and 9.30 and 11.15. And then we have our candlelight services at 3 and 5 and 7. So there's much happening at Calvary Chapel in Hillsboro. We certainly invite anyone that does not have a home church, you're welcome but uh, we're all celebrating the same Lord and King. We're all yes. in the same kingdom. Wherever you celebrate, celebrate with joy and truly bring revival. And that's all my, that's my prayer. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Rich. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only portion of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Kathy Hochul passed a bill allowing for a task force uh, for a reparations plan. The governor, like other governors around the country, have boldly pronounced that there's going to be an investigation. There's never any follow through. But nonetheless, on Tuesday, signed a bill that empowers a statewide task force in New York to consider racial reparations for black New Yorkers whose ancestors were once enslaved in the U.S. Following California's lead, New York is now the second state to authorize a commission that will examine whether any reparations should be made for the nation's history of slavery and racism. A nine member task force appointed Appointed by Hochul and a state legislature will recommend ways New York can redress past discrimination, which can then be enacted by state lawmakers. New York would struggle to pay uh, restitution to blacks given the state's projected $4.3 billion budget deficit for fiscal year 2024. So it is essentially an exercise in futility. Well, in New York, State Senate Republican leader Rob Ort, he said that the commission recommendations would come at an astronomical cost to taxpayers, including African-American taxpayers and argue that reparations have already been paid. The reparations of slavery were paid with the blood and the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans who fought to end slavery during the Civil War, or said. Ahmed Al-Khalut, the manager of the Kamal Adman Hospital in northern Gaza, admitted during an interrogation with Israeli forces that Hamas used the medical facilities to advance its military operations. I know 16 employees in the hospital, doctors, nurses, paramedics, and clerks, who also have different positions in the Qassam brigades, he said, speaking to um, Israel's Shin Bet in a video clip released on Tuesday afternoon, referring to the military of Hamas. They hide in hospitals because for them, a hospital is a safe place. Klaut, uh, whose hospital is located in the uh, Jabalaya neighborhood of northern Gaza explained to Israeli security officials they, referring to Hamas, won't be targeted when they are inside a hospital. Hamas, in their own words, um, Ahmed Kalad, senior Hamas official since 2010 and the director of the Kamal Adwan Hospital in uh, Jabalaya in uh, northern Gaza, admitted to the same.
A federal judge has blocked the removal of a Civil War memorial from Arlington National Cemetery over a lawsuit that says that its removal would damage the graves of the Confederate soldiers buried around the memorial. U.S. District Judge Rosie Alston issued a temporary restraining order on Monday, stopping the Pentagon's removal of the Reconciliation Monument, also known as the Confederate Memorial, after the Defend Arlington group sued to stop the memorial's removal. The memorial was ordered to be removed after Congress created a commission in 2021 to evaluate links to the Confederacy on the any federal property. Alston's order blocks any acts to deconstruct, tear down, remove or alter the object of this case. The memorial was first erected in 1914 in a section of the cemetery meant for Confederate soldiers. USA Today points out that 44 lawmakers led by Georgia Republican Representative Andrew Clyde wrote a letter to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin demanding the Reconciliation Monument be kept. Clyde said the monument does not honor nor commemorate the Confederacy. The memorial commemorates reconciliation and national unity, perhaps something we have lost. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson is taking criticism for moving to end the selective enrollment process at certain schools in the Windy City in the name of equity. The Chicago School Board passed a resolution on Thursday that seeks to move away from the school choice and bolster the city's neighborhood schools to address longstanding structural racism and socioeconomic inequality. But the move comes after Johnson reportedly told the Chicago Tribune Tribune, rather, a Johnson administration would not end selective enrollment at CPS schools. According to the resolution that was passed, the board is looking to transition away from privatization and admissions enrollment policies and approaches that further stratification and inequity in CPS and drive student enrollment away from neighborhood schools. So which is the case? Only an election, I suppose, will prove the answer. Schools in England should inform parents when a child changes their gender identity. That's according to a new government guidance issued this week there. The long-awaited new guidance published on Tuesday by the United Kingdom's Department of Education applies to schools in England and has been expected since 2018. Parents should not be excluded from decisions taken by a school or college relating to requests for a child to socially transition, the guidance states. A social transition can involve a student taking Uh, using a new name, new pronouns, different clothing, and using the bathrooms or playing on the sports teams of the opposite sex. Well, under the new guidance, teachers do not have a general duty to allow pupils to socially transition and are urged to use caution, including watchful waiting periods and ensuring parents are fully consulted before any decision is taken. Hmm. Marking the 20-year anniversary of Gavin Newsom's 10-year plan to end homelessness. Catch that? 20-year anniversary of the 10-year plan. I don't want to over-promise, but I also don't want to under-deliver. I want to hit the ground running. That was a quote from uh, the uh, governor. Those were the words of the San Francisco mayor-elect, uh, Governor Gav- rather Gavin Newsom, in 2003 in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle about his plan to aggressively go after his administration's top priority. Homelessness. Specifically, it was Newsom's 10 year plan of ending chronic homelessness and going after tens of millions of new dollars in federal funding, the Chronicle explained at the time. But it's now 2023, a full two decades after Newsom announced his 10 year plan for ending chronic homelessness, and he didn't. Well, contrary to the uh, quote given to the Chronicle, Newsom both overpromised and underdelivered. Not only does the problem remain unsolved today, but in the time since, he's taken his failures statewide. The CAGOP chairwoman, uh, Jessica Millen Patterson, says 
Gavin Newsom's 10-year plan to end San Francisco homelessness marks the 20th anniversary all across the state where the numbers have increased. 66% of Americans are pessimistic about the future. Now, that is, of course, looking at the ground from a worldly vantage point. Intended uh, holiday spending per person jumped 31% to $1,300. Uh, dollars this year, according to the CNBC All America Economic Survey. 18% of respondents said that they will spend more this holiday. Biden's overall approving ra- approval rating fell to 35%, the lowest CNBC has recorded in his presidency. His economic approval rose a point to 33%, and disapproval declined a point at 62%. The 66% of Americans say they're pessimistic now and for the future, a record high in the 17-year history of the survey. We've never found people more depressed. U.S. population growth continues at a slow rate. The U.S. population grew 0.5% this year. That's according to the Census Bureau. Estimates are released on Tuesday as the pandemic's effects on births, deaths, and immigration continue to fade. The increase for the year that ended June 30th was similar to the previous year when the population grew 0.4%. The new estimate shows the population has grown to 334.9 million, up 1.6 million people in the past year. In the decade before the pandemic, the U.S. grew by an average of 2.1 million people a year. The slow growth showed the combined effects of elevated death rates, which are dropping from pandemic highs but remain high, higher, in fact, than pre-pandemic levels and record low birth rates. A George has or- a judge rather has ordered Epstein files unsealed unsealed since 177 former high profile associates of the late sex offender and financier Jeffrey Epstein uh, may be running for cover on New Year's Day following Judge Loretta Preska's order to have the unsealed in full documents. Uh, the court contained the names uh, the documents contained the names of his friends and associates. Will the names of those who flew on the pedophile's infamous Lolita Express finally be revealed? That's the question most are wondering. Will the public finally be made privy to the rich and powerful who may have engaged in his crimes? Well, this is happening now, years after Epstein's suicide, thanks to the draconian case raised by Virginia Roberts, one of his victims against Epstein's cohort, Giselaine Maxwell, as well. Well, the judge's order is likely caused uh, causing a stir across the Atlantic among the royal family as Prince Andrew has been accused by Roberts of sexual assault. Uh, stay tuned as it's uh, a good bet that over the next two weeks, actions will likely be taken to prevent the judge's order from being realized. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, tomorrow on the program, we'll engage in conversation with Pastor Alvin L. Curie. He is the pastor of Pillar of Truth Community Bible Church in the Seattle area. He's also the host of Let the Truth Set You Free, heard on KGNW in Seattle. He'll be our guest, and the subject, of course, will be Christmas. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as employers across the U.S. complain about the lack of skilled workers at their disposal, the Biden administration is taking decisive action, albeit not the kind of action that will improve things. Instead, Team Brandon's uh, Brandon is focused on improving the wait for it diversity, equity, and inclusion of union apprenticeship programs. Indeed, as the Wall Street Journal's opinion page observes, the Biden Labor Department has proposed an anonymous 776-page rule that purports to clarify a two-page 1937 law regulating apprenticeship programs. 776 pages 
to clarify a, um, what, three-page document. Such programs have long helped workers train for a skilled trade while earning a paycheck under the supervision of experienced workers. As the journal notes, they are a common, low-cost way for employee, employers rather to train workers in trade occupations such as plumbing and construction. They can also serve as a worker pipeline for newer industries such as cybersecurity and green manufacturing. Unfortunately, they're now being overly regulated and sufficiently woke to provide gender-appropriate bathrooms for all and personal protective equipment that fits according to each apprentice's size and body type. If every, uh, if employers rather think there's a shortage of good employment candidates now, well, just wait. Foreigners and non-citizens control about 2% of the U.S. over the last two, last decade. Foreigners have um, been buying up millions of acres of U.S. farmland, so much so that as of December 2022, foreign persons held an interest in over 43.3 million acres of U.S. agricultural land. That's according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That total was, say, 3.4 million acre increase over the year prior and represents 3.4 percent of all privately held agricultural land and nearly 2 percent of all land in the United States. Who are these foreign entities buying up U.S. farmland? Why the majority of foreign-owned U.S. farmland belongs to friendly nations such as Canada, the Netherlands, Italy, and the United Kingdom. A number of purchases are tied to countries that aren't so friendly. Venezuela, Iran, Syria, Cuba, Russia, and of course, China. The Senate sought to include a block on allowing China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea from buying American farmland in the National Defense Authorization Act, yet it failed to match up with the House's version and was stripped from the legislation. Both Republicans and Democrats have voiced concern over foreign ownership of U.S. farmland when Senator Tom Cotton argued that, at best, it doesn't serve America's interest, and at worst, these purchases undermine our security. Back in September, Senator John Fetterman, he contended that the Chinese government and other U.S. adversaries should own zero, zero agricultural land in our country. Well, regarding China specifically, Fetterman added, they're taking back our pandas. We should take back all of our farmland. Well, it's a thought. Vice President Kamala's um, reproductive freedom tour is about to uh, begin. This is her latest in a series of assignments, apparently. On Tuesday, the vice president announced that she will soon be crossing the country engaged in a pro-abortion tour, dubiously dubbed the Reproductive Freedoms Tour. Harris plans to crisscross the country, building a coalition and community to fight for reproductive freedom. The vice president justifies her tour by claiming that there is a full on attack in our country against the ability of people to just make decisions about their own body and their life. That's a quote. Of course, Harris makes no mention that the hundreds of thousands of fatal attacks on um, uh, the bodies of preborn babies annually. Harris's tour is scheduled to begin in Wisconsin on the 22nd of January in recognition of the 51st anniversary of the now overturned Roe versus Wade decision. It's uh, clear that Democrats see abortion as the winning campaign issue for them going into the election. And with Joe Biden now sinking below Harris in national polls, this is an opportunity for her to raise her profile on a popular platform issue with Democrats with a possible aim of pushing Biden out. If you've been losing sleep over the calamitous effects of cows passing gas on our planet's climate, you aren't likely to be soothed by the warm wind from the U.K. study that says we humans are heating the globe simply by breathing. So I expect the next directive from somewhere, the U.N., would be to just stop breathing. Well, the NDTV reports exhaled human breath can contain small elevated concentrations of methane. 
and nitrous oxide, both of which contribute to global warming. Experts explain that methane and nitrous oxide in the air we exhale make up to 0.1% of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions. So once you factor in the, well, burps and gas passing being produced by humans, it's become, well, clear that humans are fueling global warming by just exhaling their lungs, according to scientists. But while these findings might seem troubling, they also come with a simple solution, a solution that every concerned leftist can immediately employ. Just stop breathing. Interestingly, the New York Post picked up this story, but its accompanying ex-post was fact-checked thusly. Breathing is carbon neutral. All of the carbon exhaled came from carbon plants, extracted and stored. Perhaps we humans can breathe easily after all, at least for now. Those who believe, as Thomas Jefferson did, that a government which governs least governs best will be thrilled by the news that our 118th Congress passed a paltry 24 bills during 2023, which makes this the least numerically meddlesome, least mischievous Congress since 1989, the first year of the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. Of those 24 pieces of legislation, only 20 have so far gotten Joe Biden's uh, signature, while the other four await said signature. Left-leaning Axios seems somehow troubled by the news, noting it is the product of not only divided partisan control of Washington, but infighting within the House Republican majority that has routinely ground legislative business to a halt. That includes the three-week period this fall in which Congress was paralyzed, Republicans' inability to find a replacement of, for ousted uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, to this we say boo-hoo, and we'd remind them that, at least to conservatives, Speaker Mike Johnson is a significant upgrade in more ways than one. Well, further, we'd also pass along to Congress that age-old encouragement on behalf of those who prefer a healthy dose of Beltway gridlock. Don't just do something. Stand there. Well, apparently they've done a lot of that. What they've squabbled in the meantime. Will pro-Hamas insurrectionists get the J6 treatment? And we haven't yet heard from Attorney General Merrick Garland, but we're sure his spirited denouncements uh, are being crafted as we go uh, go to uh, to air. After all, Garland was swift and forceful in his condemnation of all the J6 participants, most of them tourists, but some of them undercover FBI agents and other cop assaulting thugs. And we'd expect nothing less this time around from the attorney general who will no doubt follow the facts wherever they lead or not. Well, as Fox News reports, dozens of anti-Israel protesters were arrested on Tuesday after staging an illegal rally inside the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, an act led by activist Linda Sarsour, according to reports. The pro-Hamas crowd was calling for a ceasefire in the Hamas-Israel war, chanting clever ditties like, not another nickel, not another time, no more money for Israel's crimes, and carrying signs that read, stop arming Israel. It's the third such protest in the capital, and we doubt it'll be the last. Ramaswamy has pledged to withdraw from the Colorado ballot amid the Trump removal and the Biden border crisis shattered another record with 14,509 illegal immigrants encountered in one day. One study says 59% of non-citizen migrants use welfare in the country. The Pentagon announced a new international mission to counter attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea. And Jim Jordan subpoenaed Merrick Garland over the Department of Justice alleged efforts to spy on Congress. 
Fresh allegations of plagiarism have been unearthed in an official academic complaint against Claudine Gay. And Associate Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson has been slapped with an ethics complaint over her husband's income. President Biden feels uh, so much more uh, so much younger, rather, than 81, as his wife and aides reportedly warn him to slow down. Biden is reluctant to accept his old age, aides say. New York Dems target Chick-fil-A for being closed on Sundays, and a Philadelphia LGBTQ activist has been charged with raping minors. Multiple New Jersey school districts have scrapped transgender policies, and EVs are bad in winter. They're costly and time-consuming to repair. Well, we are out of time. want to remind you tomorrow, Pastor Alvin Curie will be our guest. want to thank James Blind for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.